Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Does Canada's spy agency need to change? We'll discuss that. And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Giacchini's weekly report from Washington. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots going on in Ottawa. The Prime Minister is uh, heading down for a meeting with the Three Amigos uh, starting tomorrow, actually. Uh, a new book by a former finance minister uh, that basically slams the Prime Minister for his handling of COVID-19, among other things. And to talk about all things Ottawa and uh, national politics, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, hell hath no fury like a finance minister scorned. Uh, that, that, that seems to be the uh, the theme of this. Uh, Mr. Morneau, of course, has a new book out. Uh, he was on with Vashi Capellos on CTV yesterday, uh, basically slamming the prime minister for his his treatment, I guess, and his policies during COVID-19 and uh, and bemoaning the fact that I had the answers. I, I'm sound fiscally and they weren't listening to me. Uh, what, what was your read on what Mr. Morneau is doing here? Yeah, that was a. I watched that too. That was a really interesting interview, and I'm I'm interested to read the rest of the book. Yeah. It sounds like you know he is is quite. Uh, he wants to get his narrative out there, and he wants to give some context as to what was going on and why he walked away. And I mean, there was a few people who made comments about there being a point to having healthy tension between a prime minister and a finance minister, and I totally agree with that. If we think, for example, to the the days of Cretchen and Paul Martin. They clearly weren't the best of friends. They saw the world differently, but there was a sense that each of them understood and respected the the opinion of the other, and there was value to having the different opinions, and there was value to having somebody who could really kind of stand up to the prime minister and have a really big presence around the cabinet table. And it just doesn't sound to me that that's exactly what Bill Morneau is saying. It sounds like, you know, he, he talked about healthy tension, but then the kinds of comments that he makes and the, the questions that he has about the prime minister's leadership and the handling of things seem to suggest to me that the tension wasn't always totally healthy. And by the time he walked away, you know, it was really because he felt he wasn't having effect and the management of things was not set up in a way that he could have effect as, as finance minister. Well, and that's the problem. And 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 again, to put it in context, and I, I shared the same feelings that, as you when I watched this yesterday. Uh, the problems between the prime minister and the finance minister started long before COVID. I mean, there were disagreements about a number of different things that Morneau had proposed and it included in the budgets. So I would imagine, and I would suggest that that, that acrimonious relationship started long before that. It, it probably poured gasoline on the fire, but it was I think it was there from not necessarily from the beginning in 2015, but it didn't take very much longer after that for these guys to be at loggerheads. I think that's right. And I mean, part of it is that we don't always get to know that much about what about what's happening in cabinet. Obviously, it's a kind of a, a secret place. And that the conversations that happen around the cabinet table are, you know, by constitutional requirement, those are those are private conversations so that ministers can speak frankly. 
And so we don't always know exactly what's happening and whether ministers are feeling like they can really speak up and what ministers are deciding the issues and things like that. But I think you're right. Clearly, Trudeau and Morneau had different ideas about how to run the economy. And Morneau, I think, was somebody who clearly is very successful in the private sector, who came to government maybe with the assumption that he was going to be able to have a lot of individual effect and maybe did not, you know, like he would not have been in a world before where there was someone equivalent to a prime minister making the decisions, calling the shots, and Morneau has to go along with it, right? Like it's such a different world to be in government than it is to be in the private sector. And so I think it's possible that he really felt frustrated at trying to have effect on policy and and be told by the prime minister's office and staffers of the prime minister what was going to happen. So we're we're hearing a lot about how government works from from Bill Morneau, which is a really interesting take, especially as finance minister. And so I think, you know, not I'm not plugging the book. I haven't read it, but I'm I'm going to because I'm interested in what else he's got to say. And this this his impressions of the prime minister's leadership style, his impressions of how the PMO worked. Like it's, you know, it's it's rare, I think, for us to get a finance minister's, you know, re- kind of direct commentary on something like that. Just, uh, just as I was listening to the, the conversation yesterday uh, and the tone of it, is, is there a possibility that really, Laurie, that, that there was some resentment there? I mean, as you mentioned, Morneau was a big man on Bay Street and very successful in many ways. He was a star candidate, of course, ran and, and won in that, in that election in 2015 when the Trudeau government rose to power. But he wasn't even the big dog in cabinet. I mean, Christia Freeland was given mm-hmm. that role, basically. And, and and usually the finance minister and the prime minister have, uh, as you say, it, it may not be a, a, you know, a hug, you know, hey, you're the best kind of relationship. But he was down the totem pole a few notches. And I don't necessarily know if he was comfortable with that. Right. And there was there's always been a sense that when when Trudeau came to to power, like, obviously, he really relied on this roster of star candidates to put a very different face on the Liberal Party. And he was working from, you know, when he became leader 10 years ago in, in April, the Liberals were in the worst shape they ever were in their lives. And, you know, were doing worse than I think anybody thought possible. They had 34 seats in the House. Like, that's not familiar territory for them. And so Trudeau decides he's going to put his his own stamp on the party. He's not interested in being advised and having everything run by the old guard. He wants everything to be new. And so he's got this list of candidates, including uh, Jane Philpott, Christian Freeland, Morneau, um, Jody Wilson-Raybould, like people who are really stars in their own right, who are coming to politics from a, in, and aren't spending their lives as, as entrenched partisans. But there was always the sense that Freeland is his right hand. And so if that's the person he trusts, it does kind of put the finance minister, I think, in a kind of a strange position where you're fighting for oxygen, you're fighting for airtime, you're fighting for perhaps time with the prime minister to be able to get him on side to what you want to be doing. And so you can, I mean, yeah, like you can see from Morneau's perspective how this was probably a difficult arrangement for him. The other element to this is maybe the most damning accusation in the book uh, was that uh, He's basically accusing the prime minister of of, of developing policy uh, to try to to score political not political points but public opinion points uh, as opposed to what the best fiscal policy might be. Uh, that's that's I, I'm I'm kind of confused about that and and a little betwixt and between because anybody who's in elected office wants to get reelected and and that has to be a factor in this and and I'm sure that his staff uh, including Butts and some of the other folks that were around back then uh, would remind him of that constantly. Uh, it's it's you you can't be ideological in this position. You've got to be pragmatic at some point. And maybe Morneau wasn't capable of doing that. 
It's interesting because I, I mean, I agree with you. Like, obviously, if you're a politician, you can have all the best plans in the world. But if you don't get reelected and you're not able to do them, then, you know, you're kind of up against it. I th- and I wonder if there's is a tendency sometimes to look back and think there was a golden age once where people, politicians were less worried about re-election. They were less, you know, less inclined to chase public opinion polls and they were more willing to kind of put a vision out there and see it through. And if people don't vote for us again, well, so be it. I don't know about that. Sometimes I find that's the tone of how we talk about politics now is that we're, politicians are kind of so preoccupied with electoral outcomes that they're not sticking to vision they're not sticking to ideology and there's lots of really smart people saying smart things about that for example susan delacour's book shopping for votes which is Mm -hmm. you know almost 10 years old now but this thesis around like we are really just kind of chasing as voters the best the, the best deal for the best price we're shopping around for the best thing and politicians are shopping for us too, right? They're, they're not, there's not that kind of same commitment to ideology or vision. And so it's, you know, it's up for up to us to make up our mind as to whether politics has become more transactional if voters have become more promiscuous and therefore politicians have to be playing a different kind of game. But I think Morneau is expressing a really interesting frustration that is felt by a lot of people. Can't you just put something out there and get it done as opposed to, constantly be sort of maneuvering yourself to see what's going to land you more votes. And in related issue, uh, since, uh, you know, according to Mr. Morneau's accusations, of course, the prime minister was, was uh, being consumed by public opinion polls and trying to get better numbers mm-hmm. in those. Uh, Nick Nanos, year end poll, of course, uh, tells an interesting story here. And it, it, it kind of dovetails into what you've been mentioning to us in the last couple of months too, Laurie, that uh, every government has a best before date, and we're coming up on the 10th mm-hmm. anniversary of this government. So, you know, when you look at the Nanos numbers about how poorly the prime minister and the party are doing in the polls, uh, they're, they're, by the way, they're not down in, in the, the basement here, but I mean, you know, they're, they're dropping. And yeah, uh, but is, is that to be expected in, in a time like this? We just seem to, after about eight or nine or 10 years, uh, figure, okay, it's, uh, that's it. Uh, let's, it's time to change horses here. Well, I think that there's, there's, an inevitability to it, that a government is going to lose its shine after a while, no matter how shiny it was when it started, you're going to get to a point where people are just fatigued with whatever the message is, fatigued with the people who are filling the the chairs, and they're going to look for somebody else. I I still think that's Polyev's biggest challenge, is to not necessarily form some big coalition to the right, but to just look like he is an appropriate and credible alternative to form government and keep his powder dry, and he might just, you know, walk away with this. But I saw the numbers this morning, too. It, it, people keep talking about an election this year. It looks like a pretty dangerous proposition for the government to be thinking about that. What happens if they end up with a situation where Polyev and the Conservatives get the plurality but not the majority? Trudeau and the Liberals with, you know, with the NDP want to hold on. Are people going to buy that? My guess is there's going to be a blow up over that. But at the same time, um, you know, how would Polyev govern if no one would back him? And so it it could possibly be a really unstable situation, much less stable than we have now. And what is the point? What is the key, the key ballot question that they want to answer, right? And so, I mean, clearly the Liberals aren't in majority territory and it's possible that they're bleeding support on the progressive side to the NDP. So I don't know. I'm not sure if I see it. I, I still can't figure it out why they, they would do an election this year. 
Well, and in, in the polling here, Nanos uh, drove the analogy more than once, I guess, in the report I saw, uh, that he's in the same place that Stephen Harper was after uh, his nine or 10 years in office. We just get tired of them. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, the numbers here indicate that uh, although the, the conservatives have a slight lead in, in the polls right now, uh, voters, by and large, don't like Polyev. I mean, he is still four points behind Justin Trudeau as the person they'd like to see as prime minister. Right. And so that's the issue is whether he can manage his image to the point where he is seen as, a again, like a more a, a more desirable alternative. And we can see, you know, that his his numbers, particularly when it comes to popularity with women, are low. He needs to build that if he's going to be if he's going to be in, in the running to be prime minister for real. And the other thing, too, is that it's not just about the policies. It's about him. It's about how he carries himself, how he communicates what is, you know, like how he actually addresses people and what his relationship is with the media. All of that is about trust building. It's not just about the policy side. And so it's possible that if he doesn't figure that out, even if an election comes and he's talking about policies that could build a, you know, could have interest to, to women voters, they're not listening to him by that point because they've already kind of turned off the channel when it comes to him. And so I think he's got, you know, he's got a couple of challenges there. And depending on when the election comes, he may or may not have enough runway to, to figure those things out. It's going to be an interesting year in 2023, especially when it comes to federal politics. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate our conversation. Me too. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks uh, to the uh, first anniversary of the uh, Ottawa situation, of course. And there was an inquiry about that. The, the prime minister and many others testified and uh, the report coming out uh, indicates some rather interesting observations, including CSIS, which uh, many people refer to as Canada's spy agency. Uh, the prime minister actually said that uh, CSIS uh, is incapable of performing its duties, and that might have been a contributing factor. Not so sure how true that is, and not so sure what the ramifications of a statement might, like that might be. Uh, a great op-ed piece that uh, I think covers this off quite nicely from our next guest. Uh, Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, and of course, a former CSIS analyst. And he joins us here on the Bill, Bill Kelly Show to talk about, uh, well, the, the federal government's plan for the future, if in fact the plan is the right word. Uh, Phil, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Morning, Bill. Happy belated New Year, sir. And to you, too. Good to be back in the saddle here and talking about this. Uh, I, as I look at some of the comments here, and I, I really enjoyed the piece that you wrote. Uh, it's you. called The CSIS Canada Spy Agency Really Need to Change. Uh, this indication seems to be, as, as I read through some of the comments of uh, Minister Mendocino and the Prime Minister himself, that they think that maybe CSIS needs even more tools and needs even uh, more oversight into the things that are going on. Is, is that warranted? Not surprisingly, Bill, I'm going to say no on that one. Um, a lot of this seems to to come from the fact that, if you recall, Bill, during the inquiry, the CSIS director stated quite quite openly that he and his organization did not see what happened on Parliament Hill with the blockades, and you and I have talked about on many occasions, as a national security threat. And then, miraculously, two days later, said, but we still supported the, the use of the Emergencies Act, which suggests to me... That, you know, someone got a phone call or an email saying, we really need you to support us on this. To me, it smacks of sort of a, you know, post facto justification to what the government decided to do. We can argue whether or not the blockade was, you know, it was certainly tiresome. It was a pain for Ottawans, et cetera, et cetera. But 
when I read those types of things, Bill, what, what comes to my mind is that the government needs to convince us as Canadians that what they did was correct. And if they get the security services on side by extending their mandate or giving them more powers, whatever, they somehow justify the actions that they took. That That's kind of the the best explanation I have for that. But this is multifaceted, as you and I talked about, even when this was happening about a year ago. Uh, and, and why the focus on CSIS? Why not on Ottawa Police Services? Why not on the provincial police who uh, and, and the, prim- the Premier of Ontario? I mean, there were a lot of facets and a lot of working parts that, that quite frankly, weren't working, uh, yet they seem to be focusing on CSIS. Yeah, that's a really good question because, of course, the security service, you know, those of us who worked in that world, we don't like it to, to have the public spotlight on us because we do things on a, on a very sensitive level. We have operations that require an, an ultimate in secrecy so we can protect our sources and protect our methods kind of thing. I, I'm really not sure why they've gone after CSIS. It's, you know, the organization has been around for the better part of almost four decades now, came out of the old RCMP security service. We've had some great successes, uh, certainly when I was there. And yeah, there have been the odd times where we've missed things for sure. I don't know if I call it a scapegoat bill or is it the government just seems to want to try and tell us that, in fact, what took place on Parliament Hill or just off Parliament Hill, not only constitute a national security threat, but should somehow be a priority for CSIS. And I've I've argued and I've argued with you and many others over the years that doesn't change the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that, you know, kilo for kilo, at least internationally, uh, the greatest threat from a national security perspective, at least on the counterterrorism side, still comes from Islamist terrorists, what we call jihadis. And of course, we have the whole counterintelligence side, what China's doing. The government seems to be awfully reticent on Chinese interference here in Canada, what, what Russia's doing, not only in Ukraine, but here. It's almost like they want to divert people's attention to something which isn't really all that important. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it's, it's not, not critical to somehow um make Canadians ignore that they're they're failing on many other things and the China file is something that's that's huge that the government doesn't seem to be picking it up on the uh, inference here seems to be that uh, that they feel that uh, well the act that actually created CSIS uh, called well the CSIS act uh, back in 1984 they suggest that the mandate is outdated and and needs to be uh, revisited do you agree with that 100% no. The The Act was created very carefully, and I've spoken to people who were behind the drafting of the First Ceases Act in my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom. It, it, it was vague for reasons, Bill. And it simply stated is that threats mutate over time. You can't say we're going to look at, you know, A, B, or C when down the road it could be X, Y, or Z. So you want your language to be both sufficient and necessary to allow you to investigate what you need to investigate so what CSIS can do under the, as you said, the CSIS Act is contained under Section 2 of the Act. That defines the threat environment. And it's it's written in such a way that, you know, as new things arise, you can you can adapt to them. And they talk about things like foreign interference, which is a very broad term. They talk about espionage, same thing. They talk about terrorism as, as, as closely defined. They talk about subversion. I would argue that CSIS has done an excellent job over its almost four decades in identifying threats investigating them and stopping bad things from happening given the get within the current legislation so unless you want to start adding things that i'm sure a lot of people in canada would be very uncomfortable with like you know anti-government behavior well what does that mean is that protest i think i thought protests were protected under our charter of rights and freedoms so no i think the government's stretching this one bill i think the ceases act as is is a very good piece of legislation it has its faults but certainly in terms of allowing the service to, to fulfill its mandate and help keep Canada safe, it does a job very, very well, in my, in my opinion. 
I, with, there's a, a certain mistrust with uh, intelligence agencies, uh, whether it's well-founded or not. But I mean, we saw that probably promulgated by the Trump administration, you know, with the treatment of FBI and, and, and CIA and other agencies yeah. like that, uh, which he basically tried to use as his own tool. And when, and when they resisted that, of course, he decided to dump on them. Uh, but is there a problem in simply saying, well, you know, maybe if we give them more power and more oversight, uh, that they can be more effective? I, I mean... <laughs> There, there have to be guardrails and parameters here, don't there? One hundred percent. You talk about oversight. In fact, the CSIS Act, more than two thirds of it, is devoted not to what CSIS can do, but what it can't do. What's the so-called oversight function? We, we are the most. What's the verb, Bill? Oversighted, overseen, oversought. I don't know what the verb is here, mm-hmm. but in terms of intelligence agencies, I don't. I can't think of any in the world that I've dealt with that has more oversight imposed on it than CSIS does. So no, I, 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 you know, you're right, and, and and intelligence services, law enforcement, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. As I always say, uh, you're only as good as your last failure. Nobody really, really cares when you get it right, because first of all, they don't understand it, but get one thing wrong, or rather, perceived to have done one thing wrong, and they're all up, up one side again, down the other, criticizing you. So, no, this is all a this is all a word game, as far as I'm concerned, Bill. I, I think that the government did not come out very well in the inquiry in terms of its decision to invoke, let's face it, a very draconian piece of legislation on the Emergencies Act. You and I remember the old War Measures Act that was used against yep. the FLQ uh, in the 1970s. Uh, you know, you suspend civil liberties under the most dire situations. And with all due respect, the um, you know upheaval of Ottawa a year ago was not the most dire of circumstances. Nobody was dying. Nobody was being attacked. Yes, they were inconvenient, but to start, you know, suspending people's liberties over that? No, this is just a post hoc justification as far as I'm concerned, and the dragging ceases into it. I mean, there were discussions, and, and you know, we heard at the time from some of the members of uh, the organizers of that uh, situation uh, that they wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to remove the prime minister. And, and you could interpret that as, as a threat to government, and, and that's sort of an insurrection. Uh, but isn't that up to CSIS to determine? Absolutely. And as I like to say, Bill, you know, threatening to overthrow the government in a buck and a half, get your cup of coffee at Tim's. Um, you know, I, you know, I, you know that I worked in, in counterterrorism, you know, for, for a decade and a half at CSIS. And, I, and by far the vast majority of people who said things online or boasted things in certain media, you know, they couldn't organize a piss up in a bar. And they had no intention of doing so. They just wanted it's, it's something they said. There was no real intent there. There certainly wasn't any, any capability to do there. So, you know, yes, I think that CSIS would look into these people who made these statements and probably determine there's no there's no capability there and no real intent. So, we're, you know, let's not worry about it. To cite those things post facto and say, oh, we were on the, on the verge of being overthrown, that's not factually true because to the best of my knowledge, and, and, and if it had been differently, Bill, I'm pretty sure we, we, we would have seen arrests and charges laid. So the fact that nobody was arrested and charged with what we call subversion, that's Section 2D of the CSIS Act, indicates to me that the, the, the seriousness of the threat was vastly overdetermined and overdescribed. And uh, no, so I, I don't think that, that, again, this is one other thing that the government has said, given what we knew at the time, we had no other choice. Well, it, it kind of falls apart when you start looking at it, doesn't it? Didn't we see this, too, with the January 6th uh, situation in Washington? Uh, that, uh, of course, they just finished the report on that as well. Uh, and and the DOJ was, cont- uh, at that time, you know, a lot of people were really ticked off at the, for moving so slowly. You know, why aren't you laying charges? Why aren't you throwing these people in jail? Uh, you, you've got to do the investigation first, and, and if charges are warranted, you, then you move forward. You don't slap them in jail and then start looking into it, do you? Well, exactly, because, you know, if your case falls apart, you look stupid afterwards. And a good defense lawyer will say, well, where's where's your evidence? 
my client did X, Y, or Z, fine. But is that actually a, under the criminal code, whether it's American or, or Canadian? And, you know, I, I think as, as public consumers of information, we see these things happening on our TV screens or Internet, whatever. Um, we don't have a lot of context. And so we think, oh, my God, that's terrible. And clearly, the events in Washington at the Capitol were much, much more violent than what we saw happening in Ottawa. I mean, there were people actually, you know, with with uh, sticks and all kinds of stuff. Thank God they didn't have guns on them at the time, attacking people. And yet, yeah, as you say, the inquiry in the United States shows that there really wasn't any clear intent of doing anything except for becoming a pain. I, I like the, the way I described it, Bill. Is it's like like a frat party gone wrong. Um, and and as you said, the the more you, the more stones you overturn, you realize that the the threat really, really wasn't that serious. Of course, we just saw it happen in Brazil last night as well with the yeah. you know the Bolsonaro um, supporters. A lot of this is more like a, a, a tempest in a teapot, I would say. But again, if there's any serious threats of violence, that's why you have police forces. That's why you have security intelligence services to do the investigations, to identify those who are going to use violence to, to cause harm, and to stop them before they do so. Bottom line is, not a lot happened in Canada a year ago, aside from just some uh, disruptions to normal traffic outside of Parliament Hill. Exactly. Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. We'll talk again soon. Phil Gursky, former uh, CSIS analyst. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a busy week in Washington. Last week, though, was a chaotic week in Washington, as the uh, what many people thought the simple task of selecting a new Speaker of the House uh, for the uh, Senate, or the Senate had already been done, but the House of Representatives, uh, and that was a slam dunk. Oh, we already knew that McCarthy wanted the job, and the you know there was a concern about whether or not he had the votes. Well, 15 votes later, uh, he finally got what he wanted, but at what cost? That's what a lot of people are asking. To talk about this and uh, much more, please welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, a belated Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, it was crazy last week. I mean, for those of us following at home, uh, the, the uh, we always know about backroom politics and side deals and things of this nature. Uh, but I really got the sense that there was a, a pretty strong indication that this was never going to get finished, that the votes just didn't seem to be there. Uh, there seemed to be an awful lot of people in the Republican caucus, Reggie, that just don't like Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I mean, look, backroom deals are one thing, but this was almost floor deals and and aisle deals that were taking place uh, because there were so many allies of McCarthy doing what they could to try and get these holdouts to uh, come to their side. And there wasn't a lot of time in between some of these votes to try and get people to switch their allegiance. And I mean, at the end of the day here, Bill, Kevin McCarthy still didn't even win with the majority of votes in his caucus because still a, a handful opted to vote present, which doesn't really give him a vote. It simply just lowers the threshold. So yes, it would be fair to say that there are people inside the Republican caucus who are not on board with what Kevin McCarthy is doing. And I think the real test of that is going to be later today when the rules package goes to a vote, because there are already some moderates who say, look, these backdoor deals and these hallway deals that took place, they don't sit well with me. They only sit well with the far right. There's speculation, and, and I know you've seen some of this with uh, some of your uh, colleagues in, in the Washington news uh, cycles these days, and looking at this and saying, well, McCarthy sold his soul, and that it was all about power, not o over policy. What are you hearing, and wh what do you surmise? 
Yeah, I mean, look, some of the moderates in the party have 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 said that this is going to make Kevin McCarthy a weak speaker because he can be toppled so much easier or because he's given so much of a voice and so much power now to the few on the far right that it's going to make it more difficult for him to do anything um, that's kind of legislatively centered down the right uh, because he gave so much uh, away, And there is a, a real kind of concern here, again, amongst the moderates in the Republican Party that going beyond today, going beyond the speaker vote and going beyond getting rules in place, that when it comes time to things that are going to have a big impact across the U.S., like uh, 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 budgets or like funding or the debt ceiling, that they're going to find themselves at an impasse because, again, Kevin McCarthy has given so much power to this handful of people within the Freedom Caucus uh, that it really could you know, jeopardize not only the Republicans' ability to govern, but the ability for the United States to move forward without having to constantly avoid cracks and, and pitfalls that, that really could sink not just this economy, but have an impact globally as well. Is he a puppet on a string here for this, uh, as they call themselves, the Freedom Caucus? Well, he says no. He says that he's not any uh, weaker. He says that he hasn't done anything that is going to uh, make it so that the party is being led by the very few. But it is hard to see that on the surface. And we're going to see what happens after the rules package, because there have been reports here that he may lose some support within the moderates and they may side with Democrats to try and overthrow the very first uh, order of business and getting these rules put together. Uh, so we'll see whether or not he is is on a string, whether the Freedom Caucus is able to get a stronger hold on the balance of the party here. But again, from you know 10,000 feet up, not being inside those rooms where Kevin McCarthy and his allies made these deals, it is hard to see how he is going to move forward as a as a you know an effective leader. Unlike someone like Nancy Pelosi, where the rules that they had in place for the Democrats, where everything had to be at full party support in order for it to get to the floor. If it doesn't have full party support in the Republican Party now, just a few may be the ones who are pulling everyone else along. Talk to us about some of the challenges. And I know you've talked about this with some of your reporting from Washington on, on Global News, Reggie, uh, about the challenges. Uh, you know, you, you know because they are real and, and they are, you know, they're staring them in the face right now. Uh, the government uh, could go out of business once again if they don't raise the debt ceiling. Uh, there are a number of different things that have to be done right away. Uh, you know there's going to be a conflict between Democrats and Republicans, but the, the bigger conflict these days appears to be within the Republican Party itself. For sure. And I think when you're talking about the economy, that really is what has people concerned the most. I mean, look, former members of uh, the Republican caucus, like uh, Adam Kinzinger, who was a part of the J6 committee, he's already come out to blast Republicans saying that this is really going to spell potential um, economic ruin for the country later this year. Because when it comes to the debt ceiling, that simply is the amount of money that the United States is going to allow itself to borrow more of uh, and put itself further in debt. Republicans have now said that uh, in order to get the spending bill passed for the debt ceiling, it's going to have to be accompanied with spending cuts somewhere else across the government. So they're looking to kind of rob Peter to pay Paul. And in doing so, there could be pushback amongst Republicans and likely Democrats who say, look, we can't just cut something to, to, to in order to, to keep the government funded. They could run into a situation where the government defaults on its debt. What happens when that happens? Well, the markets crash in the United States and there ends up being a global financial impact from the United States moving into a default. There could be other things when it comes to um, appropriation bills. It used to be uh, the news would talk about the omnibus spending bill, which would have earmarks and, and trillions of dollars for everything. 
The Republicans now want to do it kind of bill by bill over the course of the year with uh, you know voting on each individual bill on its own, which again can throw spending into a spiral here. So there are real world concerns here for how the Republicans, again, if they get their rules passed, uh, are going to, to conduct themselves. And what does that do to the dollar? And what does it do to the economy? It leaves everything on eggshells. Well, and they kept talking as, as this wore on and wore on and wore on uh, about, as you say, addressing some of these challenges and, and moving forward. In other words, what's the agenda to try to get uh, inflation under control? There's so many other elements of this as well. Uh, but you've got a democratically controlled Senate and you've got now a, a, a faction within a faction within the Republican Party right now. What are the chances of actually finding a consensus on anything or, or is are they going to pass anything in Congress, let alone through the Senate? I mean, it's all going to come down to whether or not Democrats are able to kind of move beyond themselves and say, look, in order to get things done, we are going to have to partner up with Republicans. Obviously, it is a politically risky move uh, because no Democrat wants to then go back to their own election and say, well, look, we were tying ourselves to Republicans in order to get things done, even though it could potentially happen because this Republican Party has already said uh, whatever comes out of the Senate, if it is not aligned with something that the House has already done, or if it is not something the House you know, is interested in doing, that they're simply not going to pass that. And this could put a significant stall or pause on the Biden administration's ability to get anything done here. So Democrats may find themselves needing to pull over a very small number. Remember, the Republican majority in the House is only by five people. If they can pull over a couple of moderates, there's a real risk here that Republicans could find themselves on a losing end if Senate bills are sent over uh, and Democrats can get a handful of Republicans to vote them through. Otherwise, this is going to be a logjammed government uh, and, and potentially become more difficult for Joe Biden two years from now, if he ultimately decides to run, to run on wins, unlike what he had for the first two years of his presidency. Reggie, we talked about the influence that this uh, this Freedom Caucus is going to have here uh, and what their agenda may well be. I mean, the, number one, of course, was to try to block Kevin McCarthy and, and they cut some deals. And I, as you see, I think they've whittled his power down right now. He, he has the gavel in name only. I mean, they, they control an awful lot of this, especially if uh, some of the rumors about uh, the number of people from that uh, caucus that are going to be on some of these committees. Basically, they drive the agenda. They're the ones that allow bills or potential bills on the floor. And, uh, you know, if they're going to be guided by their ideology, it's going to be a much different looking uh, Congress and, and the, the, the kinds of stuff that they're going to be dealing with here are going to be very controversial. Absolutely. Uh, number one being the ability to overthrow the speaker under the Democrats, uh, a majority had to come forward to bring a bill to the floor to the floor to say we don't have confidence in the speaker. That never happened. Now, it went down to five people. Kevin McCarthy gave in. And now just one person can come to the floor and open up a vote to try and topple the speaker. That gets into that. Is he a weak leader? Is he sitting on a shaky podium or shaky foundation now? But that was a concession made to the hard right. Additional concessions uh, are going to be committees that have, as you mentioned, these 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 kind of ultra right Freedom Caucus members. And that includes new committees that are going to look into COVID. Yes, U.S. already had committees looking into COVID. This is going to look into government response and the origins of COVID uh, and, and looking into you know, what they're calling the weaponization of U.S. government agencies. And essentially what they're trying to do is go after the FBI and the Department of Justice 
and try to criticize them or try to make them seem like they were acting nefariously in the investigations linked to what took place at January 6th. This is an attempt to undercut what Democrats did for the last two years, potentially clear any Republicans that are finding themselves in harm's way from ongoing investigations. But it also is going to allow for some of the most classified information to be passed down to a subcommittee solely so that they can try to eliminate any risk that they are facing from things that have happened over the last few years. This this is going to be a very different Congress. Well, it seems especially because uh, some of the stated uh, purposes of some of the members, Jim Jordan comes to mind, is basically payback uh, against the Democrats in the Biden administration. Uh, Jordan makes no bones about the fact that he wants to be heading the Justice Committee. He wants to impeach Joe Biden and possibly Kamala Harris. Uh, they want to charge Anthony Fauci. I mean, this is a, a, a much more... I guess venomous uh, approach to it's not even politics really it's 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 just political payback it is a game of gotcha uh, and look Kevin McCarthy has kind of danced around the idea of going after and impeaching uh you know president Biden and again it's it's difficult to figure out what it is that they would be going to try and impeach him on because again high crimes and misdemeanors is such an open and vague term when it was former President Trump, one was inciting an insurrection and one was a quid pro quo uh, with with Ukraine. Uh, it's hard to see what they may try to go after Joe Biden for or, or Kamala Harris. And look, this goes beyond them. They've already threatened to impeach Homeland Security Secretary um, Mayorkas as well, based on the situation down at the southern border. So this is simply going to be a Republican Congress that attempts to do what they can to get an upper hand, to kind of a, a wipe clean the slate of the issues and controversies that surrounded Republicans leading up to January 6th and the two years beyond then. Whether or not any work gets done, whether or not they actually do what they were elected to do on their promises of, of spending and on their promises of, of, of um, you know, legislating, it's difficult because, again, they struggle to put a speaker in place. It, it's hard to see how they're going to come to consensus on when it comes to actually doing day to day work. One of the other main issues here that kind of fell off the table, I guess, because of what went on uh, with the choosing of a speaker uh, was the, uh, as you say, the, the case against Donald Trump. And there are a number of them right now. Uh, Merrick Garland has uh, yet to actually lay charges on this. He actually kind of stepped aside and he's got a special prosecutor. Any indication at all when we're going to get an update on that as, as to whether or not charges are going to be laid? Look, it's hard to get leaks out of the Department of Justice, and it's even harder when you have a special counsel that is in charge of not just the investigation around January 6th, but all of the investigations as well linked to um, the, the document situation at Mar-a-Lago. They have not come forward, but they are now also facing a reality here of the congressional committees that are going to be set up, opening up their own investigations into these investigations. Uh, so they may want to try and get out. They may want to try to be more transparent. Uh, but Merrick Garland is somebody who is not a fan of simply coming forward with sentence by sentence information. He likes to have everything he has to come to the public with and give them the pertinent information. Whether or not he faces or feels that there's political pressure building, that's something to wait and see. But Republicans are going to do what they can to try and clear the path to make it easier for these investigations to go away, either to make it easier for Donald Trump to to kind of be moving forward towards 2024 with nothing in his background, or to also clear some of these Republicans. But it's up to Merrick Garland and there's pressure being put on him by Democrats, not by the White House, at least publicly, to do something. Reggie Cicchini, Global News in Washington. Uh, Reggie, thanks so much for the time today. We'll be watching for your updates on this on Global National. Thanks, Bill.
Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.